This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Good evening. This is our final Bible class in this facility. I'd like to say that this is the, would be the first time I've taught a class and no one came back, but I can't say that. Um, there's some big changes afoot. One of the biggest is that next Wednesday's uh, lesson will be on Sunday. Uh, Zach will begin teaching Hebrews on uh, this coming Sunday night, which is going to be our Wednesday night uh, lesson. Uh, tonight's lesson is, I believe, lesson seven in our special series that we've been doing on Jewish history and customs. And we've been looking at the Jewish feasts and celebrations, and we're now down to the final three uh, of those feasts. And if we have time after that, I want to say a few things about the tabernacle, depending upon how much time is left over. Uh, the first feast I want to talk about tonight is one that we probably are not that familiar with as compared to many of the others. Um, it's also not one that is as, as important or widely celebrated among Jews today. This one, uh, one friend of mine who is Jewish described as uh, kind of the Arbor Day of Judaism. So it's not, not, that, uh, not that big of an event, but it's called Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing over the law, rejoicing over the Torah. And um, it, this, this, is, this follows the Feast of the Tabernacles that we talked about last week. Traditionally, the five books of Moses are read in the synagogues throughout the year, and it takes one year for them to read through the five books of Moses, the Torah. And on the, this day, the day Simchat Torah, the day rejoicing the Torah, that's the day when they finish Deuteronomy and they start over with Genesis. In fact, they will finish Deuteronomy and they will immediately start with Genesis. So it, it happens all on this day. It's kind of the transition to start over again. Uh, the celebration is primarily aimed at children and they light candles, they carry paper flags, they march around and singing uh, in honor of the Torah. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Torah in an earlier class and you may recall that to the, for the Jews, the observant Jews, the Torah is their most precious possession. And this is when they show it the most reverence. In fact, they will, they will touch the scroll in the synagogue and then kiss their fingers on this day. Um, each of the feasts that we've looked at today is, is practiced today by practicing Jews. And each of, each of these feasts practiced today comes with, with sadness us, doesn't it? As we see, it's celebrated by people who have rejected Christ as the Messiah, when in fact each of these feasts, each of these celebrations was intended to point people toward Christ, and yet they're still celebrated today by those who rejected Christ. And, you know, I was thinking of the kind of the tragedy of this particular celebration, and I think Isaiah described it very well in Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 11. Uh, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, I am not learned. Wherefore the Lord says, 
For as much as this people draw me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Isn't that exactly what's going on here? As, they, as the Jews today look at the Torah, which to them is like a sealed book, they don't understand it. And they don't see Christ on every page of, that, of, of the books of Moses. Um, I think Paul was probably thinking perhaps of this very day, of this very event in 2 Corinthians 3, when he talks about the veil, the veil that is over the eyes of the Jews when they read the books of Moses and yet do not see Christ. No one can understand the Old Testament apart from Christ. And those who attempt to do so are like someone who tries to study a book when there's a veil over their eyes. That veil, though, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, is done away by Christ. So, uh, when you look at that feast and the others we've looked at today, there's a note of sadness, as they're still celebrated today by those who have rejected their Messiah. Now, the next feast I want to talk about is one we've all heard of, and it's Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, the other name for Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication. Now, we talked a little bit about the history behind Hanukkah when we studied Daniel, because Daniel, as you know, in chapter 11, gives a whole big history of the time between the Testaments. And what led to Hanukkah happened between the Testaments, and it's all kind of sketched out there in the book in Daniel chapter 11. After the death of Alexander the Great, you may recall that his kingdom was split up into a number, number of pieces, and Ptolemy and his successors took over in Egypt, and, uh, and at first they also controlled Palestine, and the Seleucids controlled Mesopotamia and Syria. Uh, these were his generals that took over after he died. Now there was constant friction among these two groups. Um, and as is very often the case, and as is still the case today, Palestine became a war ground, a battleground between these, uh, these, uh, these warring parties. In 200 BC, the Seleucids gained Palestine from the Ptolemies. So that changed hands. And initially, it was very popular with the Jews. The Jews liked that change of power. Uh, and for one reason, according to Josephus, Antiochus uh, eased the tax burden on the Jews. So they thought that was great, as I guess anyone would. Um, however, Antiochus very soon became in conflict with Rome, which was a very bad thing. Um, and, and, and he did not fare very well in that conflict. And he was forced to pay very large tributes to Rome every year. Well, what did he do to get the money? He taxed the Jews, and he also raided their temples. So his popularity kind of took a nosedive. Uh, he was killed in 187 while he was raiding a temple, a Jewish temple. Uh, his successor, uh, Seleucus IV, continued the same policy, and he was assassinated. Um, at this time, you start getting the Jewish revolt. The Jewish nationalism and the revolt starts rising, and you get the Maccabeans coming into, in, coming into play. Antiochus Epiphanes, remember him? Hope you do from our study of Daniel. Um, he came to power after the death of his brother Seleucus IV. And he needed to unify his empire against Rome. Uh, Rome to the west, Parthia to the east, Egypt, Egypt to the south. He needed to unify everything. What did he do? He introduced Hellenism, Greek culture, into, into Palestine, into the Jewish worship. He tried to anyway. And with many of the Jews, unfortunately, they readily adopted that. And they also adopted Greek Hellenistic culture. 
Uh, Antiochus identified himself with Zeus, and he took the name Theos Epiphanes, which means God revealed, God appearing, and he thought he was the divine personification of Zeus. Uh, he was virtually penniless when he took the throne, uh, so what did he do? He increased taxes. He also raided temples. Now, all the Jews, they didn't like the taxes, and they didn't like the raiding of the temples, but they were split on Hellenism. Some of them liked it, particularly the younger Jews adopted it, and they integrated it into their Jewish society. Um, the older Jews did not like that. The matters came to a head when two men tried to outbribe each other to become high priest, um, and the winner, in fact, established a Greek gymnasium next to the temple, um, and it, it really got to be very bad at that time. Daniel told us it was coming, or should have, he told them it was coming, and we studied about that. Um, and in fact, at one point, an altar to Zeus, an altar to Zeus was built in the temple, and sacrifices to Zeus were offered in the Jewish temple. That's how bad things became. Um, Josephus tells us all about it, if you want to look in there. Now, at this, well, how does this relate to Hanukkah? I'm coming to that. <laughs> One elderly priest, Mattathias, refused to sacrifice to Zeus, and he and his five sons rose up and killed the king's officers who were trying to force them to sacrifice to Zeus. Killed them. That event was the beginning of the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus and all of his uh, followers over there. Eventually, that revolt gave rise to the first independent Jewish state since before the Babylonian captivity. It didn't last very long. 68 or so uh, B.C., uh, uh, the Romans came in and took over, and we know how that ended. Pompey showed up, and then the Romans took over. But in between there, about 80 years, you had an independent Jewish state, and that happened with this Maccabean revolt. Now, um, the Maccabeans eventually won, and what happened? The temple had been desecrated, right? All uh, sacrifices to Zeus had occurred in the temple. It had to be cleansed and rededicated. And that happened on the, the month of Kislev, which is around December, on the 25th day uh, in, in 164 B.C. And the temple was cleansed, it was rededicated, and that event is what Hanukkah celebrates. To this very day, Hanukkah celebrates that event. Now, hidden in the temple, the Jews found a small jar of consecrated oil uh, that they say didn't have enough to last very long, but somehow they say it lasted miraculously eight days until a new supply could be found, and that's why they light the candles uh, during Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah is mentioned only one time in the, in the Bible. It's in the New Testament, of course, since it was established in between the Testaments. And that's in John 10, 22, and 23, where we read, and it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication. That's it. That's Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. And it was winter. And that's Hanukkah in the winter in December. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, it was right after that that they accused Jesus of blasphemy and tried to stone him in verses 31 through 33 of John chapter 10. That was at Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, celebrates the rebirth of the temple, doesn't it? That's why they celebrate it to this day. Uh, of course, that reminds many of Jesus' description of himself in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in the building, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. 
And perhaps it's for that reason that that event of rededicating the temple uh, became associated with those who celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th. And in fact, that's the day. That's why they picked that day. That's the day of Hanukkah. Now, the next feast I want to look at is Purim. This is one we've also talked about. We looked all about Purim in our study of Esther. We talked all about it there. Uh, Esther chapter 9, verses 23 through 28, gives us a summary of the events that led up to Purim, and I, I hope we all remember that. Haman and all his, his plot to kill uh, the Jews. Um, the word Purim occurs in the Old Testament only in Esther, and it's an interesting history behind that word. We talked a little bit about it in our study of Esther. Uh, you know, why was it used? Uh, one reason we said it may have been used is because it sounds similar to Haman, which in itself sounds similar to destroy. So it may have been a bit of wordplay, uh, but it was an Akkadian word. It wasn't a Hebrew word. It wasn't a Persian word. So they brought that word in, Purim. Uh, why was it named after the casting of lots? Uh, we also talked about that, and I think there's a double meaning there also. Uh, we saw so many double meanings in our study of Esther. Uh, first, I think the obvious meaning is that it's a reminder that the fate of God's people was not to be decided by some pagan's random toss of the dice to his false gods, which is what Haman had done. And that's not going to decide the fate of God's people. And I think this feast is a reminder of that. Um, and second, I think it's, it's what we see in Psalm 16, 5 and 6, uh, where David said that God has made his lot secure. Now, that word lot is not the same word Purim, it's goral, but it's, it means lot. They both mean lot. Um, so I think this feast is recognizing that the fate of God's people is not going to be decided by the, the whim of men and the, the casting of, a, of, of dice by some, some man. It's, it's in God's hands. God will make his people's way secure. And I think this feast is a reminder of that. Now, today, the Purim festival is really more of Purim season. It, 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 it takes a while. It starts with a special Sabbath of shekels right before the start of the month of Adar. And on that month, the readings are focused on the giving of money. Next, there's a Sabbath of remembrance uh, immediately before the 14th day of the month of Adar. And on that day, the Jews remember their enmity with the Amalekites. Uh, you may remember Haman, the Amalekite, and that what had led up to that with King Saul. Talked about that in our study of Esther. A little bit of review tonight. Um, on the 13th day of Adar, the Jews fast. Why did they fast? To remember the risk that Queen Esther took on behalf of her people. And at the conclusion of that fast, the entire book of Esther is read on, on the Feast of Purim. On the morning of Purim, that's kind of Purim Eve, on the morning of Purim, the, the scroll of Esther is read again. Uh, but this time the mood is much lighter, much lighter. In fact, the children all dress up as characters in the book of Esther uh, for this special reading. And they tell jokes, they sing songs. Um, and whenever Haman's name is mentioned in the reading of the book of Esther, the children make these loud noise with noisemakers to try to drown out the name of Haman. And I talked to one of my friends who's Jewish, and he was telling me about it, and it's, they say they, all the kids just line up. They're so excited to listen for the name of Haman, and they, then they do the little noisemakers. They give gifts to each other. They eat lots of food and friends. It's, it's a real celebration. Um, sometimes they also drink. 
quite heavily. In fact, um, one of the rabbis uh, said that you're supposed to drink on Purim until you can no longer tell the difference between Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed. So, apparently. Um, today, it's only in Jerusalem, which is a walled city, that Purim is celebrated on the 15th day of Adar. Everywhere else it's celebrated on the 14th day of Adar. And um, you may recall from the end of Esther why you have that dual celebration. But again, a dual celebration. Everything we saw in Esther seemed to come in pairs, as you recall. And that's no, there's, this feast is no exception. Um, Adar, I've mentioned several times, usually hits around March. This year, Purim was March 11th and March 12th. Um, did this feast point toward Christ? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, since I've already said every feast pointed toward Christ, but this one certainly did. Uh, in fact, even today, some Jews believe that this is the only feast that will continue after their Messiah has come. We know from our study of Esther uh, that this feast uh, was an expression of faith, working, uh, looking toward the working of an invisible God among his people. And in fact, recall that in the book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned. And yet, we can see God on every, in every verse of Esther as we, as we studied it. The point of the Feast of Purim, I think, was to remind his people that unexpected reversals happen in history. And in fact, for God's people, they are more common than not, unexpected reversals, because God is in charge. And our fate is not determined by randomness and by the random casting of dice. And we're not here today because of some big bang that happened and just randomly spewed out matter. And voila, here we are. It's all coming because of God and God's plan. We're a part of God's eternal plan, part of his eternal purpose, and our fate is in his hands. And of course, the greatest reversal of all, of all time, happened between the cross and that empty tomb, didn't it? And I think this feast of great reversals was also pointing toward that great reversal. And in fact, anyone today who is a child of God has experienced a great reversal in their own life, hasn't he or she? Colossians 1, 13 and 14, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his son. That's a big reversal, isn't it? And we've all experienced that if we've obeyed the gospel. So any feast that's pointing to reversals, is pointing to Christ and pointing to the gospel. This, this is certainly what this feast is doing. Although the name of God does not appear in the book of Esther, that name is shouted out between every line in the book of Esther. And we saw that when we studied it. And Christ, who experienced that great reversal, and whose, and, and who, and, and whose disciples experience a great reversal, he appears everywhere in this feast of Purim. Why study the feast? Why have we spent time studying the feasts? Because they all point to Christ, don't they? By studying these shadows, we can learn so much about the reality that is found only in Christ. And this study, I think, has given us some good practice on our, toward our study of Hebrews, which will begin on Sunday evening. This book, that book, rather, of Hebrews, is is constantly asking us to consider and learn from those Old Testament shadows. Those Old Testament shadows that pointed to the reality of the coming Messiah in Christ. Our perfect high priest, our perfect high priest, our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it was all pointing toward Christ. And the book of Hebrews is constantly pointing back and asking us to look at that and then look at Christ. 
And I think this has been a good practice for that, which we're going to be doing all throughout our study of Hebrews. Now, in our closing 10 minutes, I want to talk a little bit about one other subject, which is the tabernacle. The details of the tabernacle are given in the book of Exodus from chapters 25 through 40. 25 through 40. You think that's a lot of space for the tabernacle. And in fact, you, think it's, you, you might even think that even more so when you consider the number of chapters that are devoted to the creation of the entire universe. And yet then look what's devoted to the tabernacle and all the detail that we see in those chapters. Um, why? Why? In John chapter 5, verses 44 through 47, Jesus said, How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? You know, I think many give that passage kind of a narrow meaning and think, well, Jesus must have been referring to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, uh, where we read, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto thee, and to him shall ye hearken. But I think as we've seen, Jesus meant much more than that. I think Moses was writing about Jesus all throughout the books of Moses. So it was all throughout the feast, the tabernacle, and, and all throughout the Torah. Uh, each of the feasts pointed to Christ. But I think perhaps no other topic in the Old Testament points more clearly to Christ than does the tabernacle, both to Christ and to the body of Christ, his church, the Lord's church, the church of Christ. Now, the key to understanding the tabernacle, I think, is found in Exodus 25, verse 8, where we read, Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. Now, in many ways, that one verse, I think, is the theme of the Bible. Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In John 1.14, we read, The Word became flesh, and what? And dwelt among us. In fact, literally, that's tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. But what is the key difference between Exodus 25, verse 8, we just read, and John 1.14, which we also just read. What's the key difference there? The key difference, I think, is that in Exodus 25, verse 8, we read, let them make me a sanctuary. That Old Testament sanctuary or tabernacle would be made by men, made by man. And in fact, Exodus 25 through 40 gives a detailed blueprint on how they were to make God a sanctuary or a tabernacle. That is not the case with the New Testament tabernacle. Not that there's not a pattern, but it was not made by man. Not made by human hands. And if you're looking for a theme that runs throughout Scripture, that's one right there. Hebrews 9.11 But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Daniel 2.44-45 For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. That stone, as we recall, represents that eternal kingdom of God that would sweep away all the kingdoms of this world made without hands. 
Daniel 2.45. Mark 14.58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Acts 7.44-50, we could read that. Uh, verse 48, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Acts 17, 24 through 25, verse 25, Neither is worshipped with men's hands. And we could go on and on. Acts 19, 26, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Ephesians 2, verse 11, Colossians 2, verse 11, Isaiah 17, verse 8, Isaiah 31, verse 7, Isaiah 45, verse 12, on and on and on. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture that that coming eternal kingdom of God would not be made with human hands. And it is not made with human hands. It, is not, it does not come from men. It comes from God. It is not our church. It is the Lord's church. He made it. He founded it. He established it. He died for it. He ransomed it. It is the Lord's church. Any organization today that is man-made, none of them can say they are the Lord's church. It is not made with human hands. And that is the theme that runs throughout Scripture. And as we study that Old Testament tabernacle, that is the distinguishing characteristic between that shadow made with human hands and the reality that was not. Now, when we look at that Old Testament tabernacle made with hands and then read about the New Testament tabernacle, the body of Christ made without hands, I think we understand a key feature better of that Old Testament tabernacle. And that is, it was made according to a divine pattern. A pattern, a divine pattern. God showed Moses a pattern for that tabernacle. And in fact, in Exodus 25, verse 9, we read, According to all that I show thee, thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. Even so you shall make it. Why? Why? Why was there a pattern? Why was it so important that Moses follow it faithfully? As you read through Exodus 25 through 40, you see the pattern laid out. You see it repeated again when, when they do it. It's over and over. It's intricate details. It's repetition. They did not want to get anything wrong. They wanted to do it all exactly according to the pattern. Why was that so important? Well, we know why it was important. And Hebrews tells us why it was important. Because that Old Testament tabernacle was a shadow of something to come. It was pointing to something to come, something that at that time only God could see. But he wanted that tabernacle to point toward that thing, and it was so important that it follow faithfully that pattern that God laid out for that Old Testament tabernacle. And we know that Moses did follow that pattern faithfully. We read about that, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8. Moses may not have understood the reason behind the pattern, but he followed the pattern faithfully. Seemingly unimportant details that may have, may have seemed unimportant to him, they weren't unimportant to God, were they? Because God was providing a pattern, a model for something that was to come, a heavenly tabernacle that was to come. And God knew every detail, and he wanted it to be just right to point toward the coming tabernacle, the coming temple, the coming church. Perhaps those who shout today loudly that there is no pattern or that the pattern we have is out of date. 
should stop and consider whether or not God has a reason for the pattern that he has laid out in the New Testament for us to follow, just as he had a reason for the pattern that he laid out in the Old Testament for Moses to follow. Biblical patterns matter because they are God's patterns. The next time we're tempted to change God's pattern, we need to ask ourselves how God would have reacted if Moses had showed up with his own blueprints and said, you know, thanks God for the advice, but I think I've got a better way of doing this. A lot of people today are saying that to God. There is a pattern in the New Testament. The New Testament does not just record the life of Christ. It also records the work and worship of first century Christians. And in doing so, it does that for a reason to give us a pattern, a pattern to follow in our worship of God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13 to follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. But some might say, oh, times have changed, haven't they? We can't follow a 2,000-year-old pattern today. We're much too sophisticated for that. Our understanding of things is so much greater today. True, things have changed. But what is central to the gospel has not changed at all, has it? Human nature has not changed at all. Sin has not changed at all. Satan has not changed at all. Christ has not changed. Death has not changed. Hell has not changed. Heaven has not changed. Man's need for the gospel has not changed. And friends, that pattern has not changed. And as we study that Old Testament tabernacle, and as we go through the book of Hebrews and study that, let's all keep that in mind, that that pattern was there for a reason, and we today also have a pattern. And maybe that's a really good place to stop and have our final Bible lesson here in this, in this building. As we leave this building, we need to remember what we've known since we were children. And that is that this building, as much of a blessing as it has been, is not the church. We are the church. And we're going to be the church in the elementary school. And we're going to be the church at the Four Points Hotel. And we're going to be the church when we get to our new facility. We're the church. And we follow a divine pattern. Thank you very much for your attention to these lessons. Our next Wednesday night lesson, which will be on Sunday, will be the book of Hebrews. And I'm looking forward to that. Uh, thank you very much. And let's end now with our closing prayer. Please stand. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio. OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.